Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Have you ever heard somebody play the guitar in such a way that it captured your attention and you just decided in your heart that you were going to learn how to play that guitar? Well, there was a time in my life when that happened for me. I guess I had the itch to learn how to play. And so I remember walking into the guitar shop for the very first time, going to Fret Mill in downtown Roanoke, and I looked up top and I saw all of the nice luxury guitars hanging high on the wall. There's a reason why they place it high on the wall, because as soon as you walk in, it's the first thing you see. And plus, they are not very cheap. But if you've ever learned or wanted to learn to play the guitar, you know you have to go to the guitar shop. You know you have to first and foremost buy a guitar. Because you can't learn to play if you don't have a guitar. Then you've got to make sure that guitar has strings on it. And if it doesn't have strings, then you've got to buy guitar strings. Then you've got to buy a guitar pick. Then you've got to buy a capo to help you play in different keys. And then you've got to buy a guitar tuner so that your guitar can be in tune. And all of that costs money. But you know, there's one thing that is required to learn to play the guitar that you can't buy in a guitar shop. There's one thing that you have to have, but you cannot pay with money. It only comes with time and experience. And if you play the guitar, you know it's calloused fingers. You see, when you pick up the guitar for the first time and you try to strum a G chord like, you know, the person you heard play, you notice that it doesn't sound quite as good or quite like what you heard. That's because they have taken the time to practice and to play time and time again. And ultimately, they built up these calluses on their fingers so that their, their fingers could be numb to the pain and the pressure on the steel string on that guitar. The word calloused, it, it simply means a part of our bodies that contains a hardened portion of skin. Today in our passage of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews is not speaking about a calloused finger and not a calloused hand or any other portion on the outward part of your body. The writer of Hebrews is speaking about a calloused heart on the inside. And may I be as bold to say this, that all of us at some point in our life have calloused up our hearts to the word and message of Jesus Christ. Today, the title of my sermon is simply this, The Dangerous Peril of a Hardened Heart. The dangerous peril of a hardened heart. If I could just summarize these several verses that we read and the content and the meat of my message is simply in this statement. The dangerous peril of a hardened heart is it will always produce unbelief. If you walk away with anything, that's what I want you to walk away with today. The dangerous peril of a hardened heart is it will always produce unbelief. The question I'm trying to ask and answer today as I've been in the study and meditating in this passage is simply this. What can we learn from Israel's wilderness journey? Keep in mind, as the writer of Hebrews is, is, is delivering his message, delivering his sermon to his hearers, he recalls in verses 7 through 11, Psalm 95. And in fact, you can go back and look at Psalm 95 and read verses 7 through 11, and he almost quotes it verbatim by, by word here in this section. 
But before we answer, and I share the three thoughts I have for you today, I want to give us a little snapshot of what's going on in verses 7 through 11, and just a little brief picture about what took place in the wilderness journey. If you would come back with me in time, come back with me a few thousand years ago to the period of Moses. And Moses receives a word from God to go into Pharaoh's palace and, and march in and say, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Keep in mind, by the way, in fact, I found this very interesting. I was studying this text. That the very first person to ever harden their heart recorded in Scripture was not Israel, but it was Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh began to harden his heart towards God's word. And God said, okay, Pharaoh, you want a hardened heart? I'll give you a hardened heart. And so Pharaoh received a hardened heart. And there, time and time and time again, Moses and Aaron marched into that place. And they said, let my people go, is what God says. And there, because of his hardened heart, God sent the plagues. He sent the ten plagues. Plague after plague after plague after plague. God rained down frogs. God brought in the lice. God brought in the flies. God slayed the cattle. God brought in the blood in the rivers. And then ultimately, the one that broke the, the, one that broke the, the straw and the camel's back was, was the blood on the doorpost and the slaying of the very firstborn in that city. And Pharaoh said, all right, enough is enough, guys. You leave this area and never come back. And I'm sure in Israel's mind, they're thinking, wow, thank you, God. Thank you, Jehovah God, for finally delivering us from all of this captivity and bondage of slavery here in Egypt. And now we're marching. So Moses gathers the two and a half millions, give or take, Israelites. And there they march. And they're going. And they're going. And they're going. And as time progresses, I can literally hear these Israelites saying after one of Moses' speeches and say, hey, hey, brother Moses, uh, you got a GPS on that rod? Is it leading us to where we need to go? Hey, Brother Moses, um, I don't know if you've, 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 you've stopped to look at all the directions, but, but if you've taken a look forward, you, have you noticed that, that the Red Sea is in front of us? And that um, those Israelites, I mean, those, those Egyptians are chasing us, and they're going to kill us? Why don't we stay in Egypt, Moses? Then we didn't have to worry about a GPS to lead us from point A to point B. And we see that God gave them direction and God showed up in a miraculous, divine manner. And we see that through the, the, the Red Sea crossing that God miraculously delivered them from the people of Egypt. And their Pharaoh, along with his army, were swallowed up in the water. God gave them direction. And then he gave them the cloud and the fire to lead them underneath the supervision of the man of God named Moses. And I can hear them as they're moving forward in their journey through the wilderness. I can hear them saying, hey, hey, Brother Moses, uh, hey, Brother Moses, uh, you remember that corn we had in Egypt? Didn't that corn taste good? Well, we don't have any corn today. So if you'd be so kind, Brother Moses, to get us some corn, that'd be great. Hey, Brother Moses, uh, you remember those cucumbers we went and picked out of the garden? And we, we sliced them up and diced them up and we ate them. You remember how good they tasted? Well, Brother Moses, we don't have any of those cucumbers. So if you'd be so kind, Brother Moses, give us some food. <laughs> so Moses prays and asks God. And God, you know the story, sends down manna. He sends down provision from heaven and feeds them. My, how are they like us today? That manna is just, it doesn't taste as good as it used to, Brother Moses. It's not as sweet as what it once did taste. God gave them direction, miraculous direction. God gave them miraculous provision time and time again. And ultimately, it came to a crisis that, that they were also in need of relaxation and rest. 
And you know the story, how that ultimately because they, they, they refused to believe the word of God, God did not allow them, that generation, into the promised land. And we see in verses 7 through 11, the writer of Hebrews is recalling back to Psalm 95 and summarizing that event and those times in the wilderness. But it's interesting, in verse number 7, the Bible says, wherefore, that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost says. It's interesting that we know that, th that there's no human author revealed in Hebrews. And we know that there's no human author revealed in Psalm 95. But what we do know is the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit of God. And the ultimate author of the Word of God is the Spirit of God. And this book that you're holding in your hand, it is the Word of God from the mouth of God through the Spirit of God delivered to the people of God. Today we have God's Word. And remember the dangerous power of unbelief, or excuse me, the dangerous power of heart and heart is that it will always produce unbelief. So what's the lessons we can learn? As we see a snapshot of what's going on in the, in the journey in the wilderness I believe that the writer of Hebrews is, is drawing the attention to those events in those verses. And then he comes to verses 12, 13, and 14 to drive home his sermon points. And today I want to share with you three lessons that I learned from this passage about the wilderness journey of the Israelites. Look at verse number 12. Let's read verse 12. It says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Here's what I wrote down. To summarize that verse, here's the first lesson. Where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. Where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. In other words, when we see disbelief, there will always be disobedience. When somebody decides, I'm not going to believe God's word, the ultimate result is that person, that individual, is going to disobey God's word. If there's ever been a message today in the church, it's that we need to hearken to the very words of Scripture. We need to listen to the voice of God. I believe also that the writer of Hebrews has in his mind Exodus chapter 17. As he's... As he's Embracing this passage in Psalm 95, I, 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 can just, I can just see it in his words, in the language that he's using here, that he goes back to Exodus chapter 17, and there the Israelites are, are journeying in the wilderness, and they're at Rephidim, and there they begin to chide, as the King James says, and complain and murmur against Moses. Because they said, hey, hey, Brother Moses, Brother Moses, I got to talk with you after the service, Brother Moses. I got something I need to share with you. I got a word that you need to hear. Brother Moses, when we were in Egypt, we had water. You remember how good that water tasted, Brother Moses? Brother Moses, we had wine in Egypt. You remember how good that wine tasted? Brother Moses, we had juice in Egypt. You remember how good that juice tasted? Well, Brother Moses, we don't have water. We don't have wine. We don't have juice. We don't have any beverages to drink. So, Brother Moses, if you be, would be so kind, give us something to drink. I can just see the force in their nature in Exodus chapter 17. So Moses goes and he prays to God and he says, God, I don't know what to do with these people. That man, they, they're just, they're making me lose my mind, God. Give us some water. So God says, Brother Moses, I want you to take your rod. I want you to smite that rock and then water is going to come out. 
And so there they go and they smite the rock. He smites the rock and there water gushed out of that rock like the Niagara Falls and there they drank the water. It's interesting, as we read in the wilderness journey, God delivered to them miracle after miracle after miracle, sign after sign after sign and wonder after wonder after wonder. And you know what Israel still did? They still chided with Moses and the word of God. They still disbelieved God out of all the miracles that God gave them. So here's the thought for today. It doesn't matter how much evidence evidence you give to somebody about God's word. It doesn't matter how much historical content that you share about how, how these events are historical, these cities, these places, they're real. We have archaeological evidence. It doesn't matter about, about how much stuff you give to them about Jesus and how he was a historical figure and he lived and he died and he rose again, that if they won't believe God's word, there's not enough evidence you can give to them. Man, they complained and bickered and murmured and chided. And the reason why they complained, bickered, and, and all that stuff is because they did not believe the words of God. And then we see, as it transitions here, we see that it speaks about they will not enter into the rest in verse number 11. And so in, in, in our minds here, we have, to, we have to rightly assume that the writer of Hebrews has in mind not just Exodus 17, but also Numbers chapter 13 and 14. As he's reading these, and he comes to verse 12, and he, and he begins to punch his point home, and he, say, he begins to recall how, how, how Moses gathered together 12 men and sent them into Kadesh Barnea, and there they were called to go survey the land. And there they surveyed the land and while they were there they found the grapes the cluster of grapes the Bible says they got the pomegranates and they brought the figs back home to show how luxurious how much this land flowed with milk and honey but as they got back 10 out of the 12 spies said brother Moses and to all of Israel there's these men that are in this land here and these men are so big, we look like a bunch of grasshoppers in their eyes. And he said, Brother Moses, we, there's, there's no way we can, we, can, we can overcome them. Their armies are too strong. Their armies are too numerous. They outnumber us, Brother Moses. Can you imagine? This is the same Israel that watched Egypt be swallowed up by the Red Sea. The same Israel that received manna from heaven and the water coming out of the rock. The same Israel that God gave them a cloud by day and fire by night to lead them and direct them. And still, they hardened their hearts to God's word. Look at verse 12. It says, take heed. This word right here, take heed. It's a really awesome phrase, and it literally means to look at. It means to behold. It means to beware. It means to look upon. It means to perceive, to regard. In other words, I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, it's time that you listen to what I have to say. Remember our, our ancestors, how they were, they were in, in, great, in a great journey in the wilderness. Well, let's take heed, my brothers. Take heed, my sisters, that we don't make the same mistake today. Notice the word brethren. You see, a lot of people will come to the book of Hebrews and they'll begin to divide it up into different sections and they'll say that, that, that there are certain times that, that the writer is speaking to his, his Hebrew brethren and then speaking to his Hebrew Christian brethren. You know, some that were Jewish but not believers and some that were Jewish and believers. I'm of the persuasion that the entirety of the whole book of Hebrews is written to believers. That is, Jewish believers. Because early in verse number 1 of chapter 3, it says, Holy brethren. 
That is, these people were set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here he's saying that you people, you have taken part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it says here, take heed. Listen to this, my brothers and sisters, lest there be any in you, any of you, an evil heart of unbelief. Would you say unbelief with me? Unbelief. Would you say it again, please? Unbelief. And one more time. Unbelief. This word unbelief. It means faithlessness. It means a disbelief or a lack of believing the Christian faith. And this unbelief and faithlessness and disbelief, it will result into unfaithfulness and disobedience to the Word of God. So he says, take heed, brothers, sisters, lest any of us have the same foolish unbelief and rebellion that those people in the wilderness had. And check it out now, what kind of unbelief? He goes on to say, in departing. This word depart, it just simply means to be removed from. It means to, in some aspects, it means to instigate to a revolt. It means sometimes to detest or to desert or to draw away from or to fall away from or to refrain or to withdraw somebody or yourself from something or someone. And here he's saying, hey guys, listen, and listen to my message. Listen to this. Do not make the mistake of those other believers in the, or those people in the Old Testament where if they ran away from the message of God in their unbelief. And then from who? Their unbelief from the living God. This is very important. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes that our God is not dead. Our God is alive and well. You see, you can go to any grave in the world, you can go to any cemetery in the country or nation or wherever, and you'll find that all of the bodies, the carcasses are there in that tombstone, are there in that grave, there in that place. But I'm here to tell you something, you can go to the tomb in Jerusalem, or the tomb in Israel, and you will not see Jesus' body there, because Jesus rose from the dead. Talk about the greatest miracle of all. Can you imagine the people of God in the Old Testament, they rejected the message of God even after God performed miracle after miracle after miracle. And then the, the God himself comes to earth. And the Bible says that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. Check it out now. His very own kin chose to reject him as the Messiah that he was. Even after he rose from the dead. In fact, the disciples went around preaching that message and they tried to silence the disciples. They tried to murder the disciples and they tried to imprison them and persecute them. Take heed. What's the message for us now? It's this. Where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. I know what, what year it is. I know it's 2020. I know we're living in a postmodern age where people have long since left the Word of God. But I want to tell you something. Just because most of our society has long left the Word of God doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean it's the Word of God. And see, I'm here to tell you, my brothers, my sisters, it is urgent that we listen to the words of God of here in Hebrews, back in Psalm 95, and back in the wilderness journey that we don't make the same mistake of wandering around for 40 years in our sin. Maybe, maybe, just maybe God is allowing America to wander around in her sin 
Maybe, maybe God is allowing the world to wander around in their sin because our world has developed a calloused heart and a hardened heart towards the Word of God. You see, Pharaoh hardened his heart in such a way that God said, I'll give you a hardened heart. You could hear the word of God time and time and time and time again. You could, you could receive the full revelation of God's word and who the Son of God was time and time again. But let me tell you something. The long-suffering and patience of God one day will run out. And if you walk away from that message, which I believe is, is kind of like the context of what's going on here, he says, hey, listen, one day later on, it'll talk about that it'll be better off to you never even have heard that message. Not necessarily saying that that person is going to lose their salvation, but walking away from the oracles and doctrine that they were taught, and they just let it alone. They dropped it and went away. Listen, Romans 1 speaks about a reprobate mind. Timothy, in his book, or the book that Paul wrote to Timothy, speaks about how, how in the last days men will depart from the truth of Scripture. In fact, the Bible speaks about how there will be a great apostasy in the world leading up to the very second coming of Jesus Christ. And hey, maybe maybe we're getting closer now than we ever were. Disbelief produces disobedience. Where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. That's the first lesson. But remember, the dangerous peril of a hardened heart is it will always produce unbelief. May I now draw your attention to verse number 13? We see the second verse, the second point, if you will, of the writer's message. Remember, there's warning passages all throughout Hebrews. Some say four, some say five, just depends on how you divide them up. But here we see the second idea in verse number 13 that, that this messenger is trying to relay to his listening hearers. Let's read verse 13. It says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. As I read this verse, I wrote down a second lesson. Where there is no exhortation, there will always be sinful deception. Where there is no exhortation, there will always be sinful deception. There's a few key words I want to draw your attention to here in this verse. The first one is exhort. And we're not going to tarry too long on this word in this moment because I'm going to come back in just a few moments and elaborate on the three phases of the ministry of exhortation. But here this word exhort, it just simply means to call near, to invite somebody to, to invoke somebody to listen to the message that you have with great urgency and of great importance. Sometimes it even means to entreat and to pray for somebody. And sometimes it even means to comfort. So he says that we are called to comfort, we are called to pray, we are called to beseech and bring an urgent message to who, does it say? Say those two words with me. One another. Say it. One another. Say it aloud again. One another. You know what that means? You know what that means literally? It means all of us. It's not rocket science. Here it just simply means to all of our brothers and sisters in our church and all of our brothers and sisters who are outside of our church that we know who are Christians. It says we are to exhort each of them. And when are we to do that? So we see we're going to exhort, but then who? It's each of us. And then when? Does it say tomorrow? Does it say yesterday? No, it says daily. Here it says daily. And then in verse number 13, it says today again. Verse number 15, it says today. And then earlier in, in the very first verse we read, verse 7, it says today. 
I was reminded of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, that great preacher of yesterday. He would preach, and he would, he would preach his message. He would preach his heart. He'd pour his heart out on the message. And at the end of his message, he would conclude and say, Hey, listen, I want you to go home. I want you to think about what was said and come back tomorrow and make a decision. And he would do that time and time and time after time. Sermon after sermon. And one day came when the great Chicago fire took place. And he preached that message. And he said, tomorrow I want you to come back and, and make a decision. And many of the people who walked out of that auditorium never came back because they were, their lives were tragically taken in the Chicago fire. D.L. Moody changed his format. He said, I no longer want you to come back tomorrow to make a decision. I want you to make a decision right now, this very day. Today is all we have. You're not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised tomorrow. Nobody is guaranteed another day on this earth. And it's urgent that we get right with God today. It's urgent that we understand today is salvation. Today is the day to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And also, as a believer to a believer, today is the day that we exhort each other. Today is the day we encourage each other. Today is the day we pray for each other. Today is the day we fellowship with each other. Uh, by the way, it's so important that we fellowship with each other because, because the Bible says that if we're not amongst each other, if we're forsaking and abandoning the, 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 our, our congregation and when we meet and we gather to worship, the Bible says that, that we could be tempted to have a hardened heart and sin will creep into our lives. Listen, I know what we're living in right now. And we tried the three weeks of online and said, that's enough. Let's get back together. And I hope there does never comes a day when, when the church here in Virginia will be persecuted and threatened to keep our doors closed and that we can't preach the name of Jesus Christ. But hey, if that day ever comes, church, we've got to figure out a way to keep heralding forth the message of the gospel and keep marching forward and encouraging each other and fellowshipping with the saints. Check it out now. It says, lest any of you be hardened. This word hardened. Yes, it can mean calloused, like I was sharing earlier. But this specific word, it literally means to render stubborn. <laughs> Some of the most stubborn people I've ever met, Brother Andrews, Brother Dave, are people, not you guys, <laughs> not you guys, but are people that sit in the church house. The most stubborn people on this earth are people who claim to know Jesus Christ as Savior. We develop these calluses towards the Word of God, and we say, yeah, I know God's Word says this, but you know what? I think it'll be all right if I do this one more time. I think it's going to be okay if I miss this service here, or if I miss this week's of service, or if I miss this month's service, or etc. I think it's going to be okay if I don't send that brother a text message, if I don't send that sister a message over Facebook. And I think it's going to be okay if I don't encourage my fellow brothers and sisters. You see, if we, if we don't encourage each other and exhort each other, then we could be tempted to harden our hearts, to be calloused up, to become stubborn towards the Word of God. Then it says, through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will trick you. Sin will deceive you. Listen, sin will, will paint this beautiful picture in your mind to say that it, oh, it's going to taste good, it's going to feel good, and because it tastes good and feels good, it's going to have great results afterwards. But actually, 
Because it tastes good and because it feels good doesn't mean it's going to have great results afterwards. And here we see that, that the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, hey guys, where there is no exhortation, there will always be sinful deception. That leads me to share this. Here's the three phases of the ministry of exhortation. The first phase of exhortation is prayerful supplication. It begins by praying. It begins by praying for your brother and sister. It begins by privately lifting up that person, lifting up that individual to God in prayer. And then it goes a step further. It says, hey, how can I be praying for you? Hey, is it okay if we just pause for a moment and we pray together? And you actually pray with that fellow brother or that fellow sister. Then the second phase of the ministry of exhortation is an urgent caution. That's what this word exhort means. It means to entreat and to pray, and then it means to caution with great urgency. And so listen, there's times in our lives where we will see our brother and our sister walking down a wrong path. And we have to consider ourselves. We have to have the spirit of humility. We have to have grace. We have to have love and compassion. And we have to go to them and say, listen, the Bible says this, and we cannot compromise the word of truth. And say, listen, if you continue that same path of rebellion towards the word of God, like the nation of Israel, your heart's going to be hardened, your conscience is going to be seared, and your mind is going to be callous to the very words of Scripture, and there may come a day when you'll just say, I'm good. I don't need the word of God. Then the third phase is this. The third phase of exhortation is comforting consolation. This word gives the idea, yes, of, of warning people and praying for people, but it also presents the case for consoling each other. That is, when you go through a trial, we are to be there for each other, to pray for each other, to encourage. And, and what happens Here's what happens. Check it out now. When the body doesn't pray for each other, when the body doesn't warn each other, and when the body doesn't comfort each other, a hardened heart will sink in, and that hardened heart can get so callous towards the message of God, they'll say, I don't want anything to do with church anymore. Where there is no exhortation, there will always be sinful deception. Where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. Listen, the dangerous peril of a hardened heart is it will always produce unbelief. May I share with you now from verses 14 and 15 of the third lesson that we can learn from the Israelites in their wilderness journey? Let's read these verses. Verse 14 says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. As I read this, these verses, here's the third lesson I wrote down. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of assurance. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of of assurance. Back in 2015, we set out on a, on a crazy adventure that, to be truthful, myself included, I, I don't think we really knew 
how hard and challenging our bicycle trip across America was going to be. In fact, as we begin to ride along in those first few rides, I realized that, that there's a level of endurance and perseverance in this trip that nobody could ever fully train for. And really, the major lesson I learned from our trip was the lesson of perseverance. That is, if I could summarize the book that I wrote, I would summarize it with that one word, perseverance. You know, when we were in the state of California, we persevered through the heat of 110 degrees. When we were in the state of Arizona, we persevered up mountains and in desolate valleys. When we got into the state of New Mexico, we persevered up to the highest peak of 8,200 feet up in the air at Emory Pass. We persevered 11 days, 11 days, 100 miles a day in the state of Texas. What a long state, full of bumpy roads. We persevered through the crazy storms, thunderstorms of Mississippi. We persevered through the extreme humidity levels in Louisiana and Alabama. And we persevere through the very final state all the way to St. Augustine Beach in Florida. We persevered from one end to the other, from the beginning to the very ending. And I say that to say this. Is that really the theme in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, is the theme of perseverance. In fact, the theme of chapter 3 is the theme of perseverance. In fact... I know that the, the ultimate theme, the ultimate theological theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. Jesus Christ is greater than, than, than Aaron. Jesus Christ is greater than Joshua. Jesus Christ is greater than anybody else in the Old Testament, including the Old Testament Levitical law system. Jesus Christ is greater, and nobody compares. But if I could argue that the second theological theme of this entire book, especially in the warning passages, is the theme of perseverance. Here's how I like to say it. The true church will always persevere no matter the severity of the trial, tribulation, or temptation. The true church, the true body of believers, those who are born again, bought from above, will endure from the day God saves them to the day God calls them to glory. Notice the words here in our passage. The, uh, one of the key words I believe in verse 14 is made. Say that with me. Made. Say it again, please. Made. The word made, it gives us similar ideas earlier in this passage and earlier in chapter 1 about how God is our creator. Listen, you cannot convince me that God did not create this world. You cannot convince me that this world created itself. There's no way. In fact, it is impossible for this world to ever create itself. God is the one who spoke the world into existence. But then, but then it says he made you and me. He made us in his very own image, and he made us to become partakers. This word partakers, that is he saved us. He made us, created us as children and sons and daughters of God who are saved to become partakers of Christ. That literally means associates and partners together with. And so he has allowed us to come into the body of believers called Christians, and he wants us to share his word. Before I get carried away, 
The theological theme I want to share with you from these two verses, the third lesson is this. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of assurance. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of assurance. We see this here, right here, the word if. In fact, it happened in verse number 6 as well. And in fact, in other key warning passages in the book of Hebrews, here the writer of Hebrews uses that term conditional if. And here, I'm fully settled and convinced that this is simply saying that if we are born again, we will endure until the very end. It says here, if we hold, this word hold it's a unique word used throughout Scripture. But in this case, it means to hold down. It means to fasten. Kind of, kind of to hold fast sometimes in memory. And here, the, the idea is that the writer's trying to convey this thought, is that we've been made partakers in Christ, and if you hold down and fasten yourself to the messages of Jesus Christ, you will never walk away from it like these Israelites chided with Moses, and they hardened their hearts towards God. And it says, hold, we hold the beginning of our confidence. This word confidence, say it with me. Confidence. Say it again, please. Confidence. One more time, please. Confidence. This word literally means assurance. So the writer of Hebrews is saying this. Our assurance is not in the writing of Moses alone. Our assurance is not in the messages the angels delivered to Gabriel, that Gabriel delivered to Mary and Joseph. Our messages is not in the words of Aaron alone. Our messages are not in Joshua alone. Our message is found in those passages because it points to Jesus and the, and the law of Moses is speaking of Jesus. The, the words of angels is speaking of Jesus. The words of Joshua, the words of Aaron, the words of the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is looking to Jesus and he is the one that we can anchor ourselves in and find assurance of our salvation. The songwriter said it best, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. He goes on to say steadfast. Kind of gives a similar idea that you're anchored in. Listen, if you anchor yourself into the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will understand that there's no need to walk away from the grace of God and go back to the Old Testament law system. There is no need. There is no need to go back to those sacrifices. There is no need to build up an altar and lay a lamb on there. There is no need to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and deliver and to atone for the high priest and for the sins of the people. We have all that fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, unto the end. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of assurance. I think of what John said. He said that they were not of us because if they were of us, they'd have continued with us. John says, These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life to them who believe on the name of the Son of God. You see, when we understand the message of the Son of God in Calvary and His redemption and His resurrection and His return, and we understand all of that, and we received it. Why would we want to set it aside and go back to the law? That's what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Look, verse number 15. It's just wild as said. He quotes back Psalm 95, brings it back to his listening, his, his hearer's attention. He says, today. He says, listen, guys, today, 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 today. 
Not tomorrow, not the next day, but today. If, there's the conditional word again, if you will hear, if you will listen, if you will hearken to the voice of God, harden. As I said, this word harden, it means to, to have a heart that has become stubborn to the voice of God. We read about the word harden in verse 13. We read about the word harden in verse number 8. We read about the word harden here in verse number 15. And we see that these Israelites harden their heart to a righteous and holy and sovereign and just God. It says, as in the day of provocation. This word provocation is also used um, in verse number 8. And, and it just simply means this. Here's all it means. Is that these people irritated the mind and heart of God that his long suffering ended and he poured out his indignation and wrath upon them. Listen, if our world continues, hear me well, if our world continues to reject the message of the word of God and continues to reject the message of Jesus Christ and continues to lay aside the word of God and continues to lay aside the New Testament and continue to lay aside the words of Jesus, then God will have no choice to send down his righteous indignation upon this world. And ultimately, that day is coming in the future. In verse number 16, the writer kind of begins to ask some rhetorical questions to these believers. He says, For some whom they had heard did provoke. The word provoke here, it simply means to embitter alongside and to exasperate. So it gives the idea of that provocation, that, that, that this means of provoking God, this means of, listen, you have to understand, these Israelites, they were proving, they put God to a test, they put God through an examination, they put God through all this stuff, and he said, listen, guys, I'm done with your foolish examinations, you will not enter into the promised land. Only Joshua, Caleb, and your little ones will go in. That's what provoke means. It provokes somebody to a final ultimatum. And here he, said, he gives the idea here that, did it Moses? Was it Moses the one who led our ancestors out of Egypt? And he says, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? For 40 years, he let Israel wallow around in a wilderness journey that should have took 8 to 11 days, probably 11 with all the people they had. And there, there they were just abiding in their foolish, stubborn hearts. He says, was it not with them that they had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So there they, God said, listen, you're not going to enter into my place of rest. You know why you're not going to? Because you've hardened and calloused your heart towards my word, and you're going to die in this desert. You will no longer exist. Let me just tell you something. Our days are numbered. The psalmist said to teach us to number our days and God knows our final day and listen, I'm not going to try to make him make my days any shorter than what they're already going to be. And that's what Israel did. They received the judgment of God. Verse 18, and to whom swear, this word swear means to make an oath. He made a promise and God delivered his promise. By the way, God always delivers his promises. It says he swear, whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. What do you think the greatest sin is? Imagine, let's take the Ten Commandments. Out of those Ten Commandments, in your opinion, which one is the worst? Is it murder? Is it adultery? 
Is it lying? Is it theft? Is it saying God's name in vain? Is it making a false idol? Is it not honoring and respecting your father and mother? Is it coveting after what your neighbor owns? Which one's, which one's the worst? Which one of those Ten Commandments do you think kept them out of the promised land? It's interesting. None of them did. Time and time again, Israel made all these false idols. They, they, they did all these abominations. But the Bible says here in verse number 19 that it's the sin of unbelief that kept them out. You know what, you know what sin you have to commit to get out of heaven? It's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, we're already separated from God because of our sin. And if we, decide, if we say, I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we have nothing to receive in the wrath of Almighty God. The Bible says that for those who do not believe on Jesus are abiding on the very wrath of God. Verse 19 says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Did you know there's two kinds of people here today? Person number one is somebody who has a hardened heart towards God's word. Are you that person? Person number two is somebody who has softened their heart to the word of God. My closing question is this. Which kind of person are you here today? Do you have a softened heart to the Word of God? Or do you have a hardened, calloused, stubborn heart toward the voice of God? You see, the dangerous peril of, of a hardened heart is it will always produce unbelief. Where there is no perseverance, there will always be a lack of assurance. Where there is no exhortation, there will always be simple deception. And where there is faithlessness, there will always be unfaithfulness. The dangers. The dangerous peril of a hardened heart. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.